Well, I invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Philippians in chapter 3. Uh, we will begin in verse 17 this morning in Philippians 3. You'll find that on page 981 in the Pew Bible in front of you if you want to use that. And if uh, you do not have a Bible of your own, we would love for you to take that Bible in front of you as our gift to you. Uh, we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, how He reveals Himself to us. we love for you to have a copy of that. And so um, I encourage you to take that. So Philippians chapter 3 and verse 17. Um, and hear now the Word of God. Brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Father, we thank You for this great and glorious truth that is before us this morning that we can set our hearts upon and our minds to meditate upon the truth in which You have seen fit to give us today that our Lord is alive and powerful and victorious and indeed is returning again. And when He comes, He will do a great and mighty work. I pray, Father, that we would all be encouraged by these truths, that You would help us to fight to believe them and to put our full faith and trust in them that we might learn how to live this life as we wait for the return of our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It was in 1899 that two famous Americans died. The first being a man named Colonel Ingersoll, who spent his career arguing against the truthfulness of the Bible, even giving his famous lectures of immorality at Harvard University. His death was sudden, and it was a, a tremendous shock to his families. In fact, it was such a shock that the body, even after death, stayed in the home for days. His wife, uh, unwilling, unable to depart with the body of her husband until finally they forced the body out because of health reasons. His remains were cremated and displayed at a crematorium. And reporters came to that event and wrote of how dismal the whole scene was. Ingersoll, who spent his entire life, in fact, this great and uh, amazing intellect, was spent in denying the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And when his death came, there was no hope. The departure was received as a great tragedy. Well, another man died in 1899 named Dwight L. Moody. His death was not sudden, but it was somewhat slow. And as he was dying, his family would take turns sitting by his bedside. And on the morning of his death, his, with his son at his side, Dwight L. Moody began to say, Earth is receding. Heaven is opening. God is calling. And which his son, Will, rebuked his father a bit, saying, You are dreaming, Father. In which he answered with great clarity of mind that had been gone for some time, No, Will, this is no dream. I have been within the gates. He would go on and say, Is this death? This is not bad. There is no valley. 
This is bliss. This is glorious. At which his daughter had been called to his bedside and she began to pray fervently for his recovery in which he sternly rebuked her saying, No, no, Emma, don't pray for that. God is calling. This is my coronation day. Shortly thereafter, Dwight L. Moody died and went home to be with the Lord. The deaths are quite different, aren't they? The circumstances that accompany them. One confidence and the other tragedy. What, what explains this difference? I mean, how do we account for how different people receive death and come into death? Well, I think it has a great deal to do with your understanding as to what death does to you. Or perhaps a better way to put it, where death will bring you. In fact, we've seen this text before us that Paul is talking about two groups of individuals. You notice in verse 20, he begins that verse with this, this simple word, but, right? So there's a contrast here. So he's saying there are these people who live this way, and then there are, but, there are other people who are like this. And he, he talks, in fact, he's going to use this term walk in both groups. He talks about the first group's walk, and what he means by that is their conduct, their behavior, the way they view world, the way they think and speak. And he says there are two different types of walks. One group walks as enemies of the cross of Christ. The other group walks according to the pattern in which Christ has given them. And then he goes on to say that their walk is going to take them to different destinations. One, he says, will be headed to destruction. But those who walk... With Christ, he says, are headed to heaven. In fact, you notice in verse 20, he says, our citizenship is in heaven. In other words, I think what Paul is saying for us here is that your, your citizenship is going to impact the way you live. It's going to impact how you speak, how you think, um, the way you behave. Most of you know that I'm from Southern California. I spent 22 years growing up in Southern California. I moved to North Carolina with hair down my back because I thought that's what people did. I soon realized that men don't have hair down their back in North Carolina. It took me quite, quite a long time to learn that I don't call everybody dude, right? And so I spoke like a Californian. I acted like a Californian. People recognized rather quickly, you're not from around here. And the, the place in which I grew up impacted me. It, it shaped me. It shaped who I am and continues, I'm afraid, even to this day. Well, the, what this Paul is talking about is his, your citizenship is in heaven. He says there's a city that, that ought to define you, that ought to impact you. And amazingly, it's not the city in which you were born or even the city in which you've been raised, but it is the city to which you are headed. It is heaven. And so I think what Paul's going to do in these verses here is he's going to unfold for us. What do heaven's citizens act like? Well, how should that impact us that our citizenship is in heaven? He'll begin by saying that citizens of heaven will follow Christ-like examples. And then from moving from this positive example, he moves to a negative and he says, citizens of heaven, secondly, will flee Christ's enemies. And then lastly, he's going to point us home, isn't he? And not just home, but the Lord who will come and get us. And he tells us that we ought to focus on Christ's home. So let's consider this morning, citizen of heaven, you who bowed your knee to Christ and placed your faith in him. How ought you to act as a citizen of heaven? Well, we see, first of all, that we ought to follow Christ-like examples. For verse 17 tells us, brothers, join in imitating me. And so Paul says, you all ought to be like me. Which I think maybe when you read that, it sounds a little bit arrogant, doesn't it? A little bit presumptuous. 
You would all do well if you were more like me. If someone came up to you that you might be take a step back and, and think, well, that's, that's an awfully bold statement. Well, you think you're some kind of super Christian that, that everyone else ought to act like you. And I think it probably would be arrogant if, we, if Paul had not already described how he's living his life. You see, Paul's not saying, be like me because I'm perfect. Quite the contrary. He's saying, be like me because I realize I'm not perfect. You remember last week in our text, and we saw in verse 12, he says, not that I've already attained all this, already made perfect, right? But I press on to lay hold of Christ, for he has laid hold of me. Brothers, he says a second time, I do not want you to think that I've already obtained this, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining on towards what lies ahead, I press on. He says, I'm not perfect. I haven't arrived. I haven't achieved what I want. I need to know more of Christ and follow him more obediently. But you would do well to follow my ambition to know Jesus You would do well to be determined, like me, to press on. And so I don't think Paul's being arrogant here at all. In fact, I I don't think he's not being arrogant um, rather clearly in verse 17 because he says, I'm not the only one you should be imitating. If you read on, he says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. And so he says, there's other people that you should watch. In fact, he says, keep your eyes on them. So we know Paul's in prison in Rome, thousands of miles, hundreds of miles away. He says, so I'm not the only one worthy of your emulation. There are people within your own faith community, within your own church that you could watch and that you would do well to imitate their life. Watch their walk, he says, those who walk according to the example you have in us that Christ has given us. And so watch their conduct and habits and their commitment and desires. I think this is uh, helpful for us. I think there's a, a, an idea in Christianity that, that we talk a lot about here that, that Chris, there's somehow... This idea has crept into American Christianity that it's some, that Christianity is a solo project. That, that we could be Christians, we could follow Christ all on our lonesome. That it's okay just to do this by yourself. Very American idea, I think, that we're all one man, one vote, and I'm gonna make my own way, and, and we, and we take that into Christianity. And what Paul is saying, no, you need examples. You need each other. You need a, a faith community. If you think that you can walk the Christian life alone, you ought to hear this encouragement. Discipleship, I believe, is never intended to be done in isolation from others. So I think we should learn from one another how to proclaim the gospel and how to have joy in all circumstances and learn from one another how to pray and study God's word and, and how to carry our cross and maintain unity. We ought to learn from one another how to grieve well and to trust God and forgive one another and, and even die well. I think this is how the Great Commission is carried out. This is how disciples are made, not simply by sitting under teaching once a week, but it is by yoking your life to someone who's following Christ and that you want to follow them. You want to be an example to them. In fact, not only should we follow people, we, we ourselves should be examples, shouldn't we? We ourselves should live lives of emulation. I hope you realize that your Christianity is not simply for you, that Christ has not saved you simply to benefit you, but he's called you to follow him, that others might follow you as you follow him. I think we would do well to hear this. In all our relationships, you think about your marriage or as a parent or as a coworker or a neighbor, church member. Do you want to live lives worthy of emulation? You know, husbands, I mean, I wouldn't recommend, by the way, you go quote this verse to your wife. Um, but you might want to think about quoting it. Right? You might want to think, okay, rather than say, honey, imitate me. You might want to think, what kind of life would I have to live in order to be able to say boldly, you ought to imitate me? What, what parts of my life need to change in order to have this life worthy of emulation? 
And as you take an account of your life, then perhaps you can, can kindly and say, I want you, I think you do well to follow me in this area, that you can be an example as you follow after Christ. You see, Paul says we're following people. We have examples. I think this raises the question, who, who is it that you're impressed with? Or who are your heroes? Who are the people you want to be like, who, that you, you want to follow after? We live in a land that, that identifies these people. And we, we put them all over our media and we, we elevate them in our culture. And they're usually uh, celebrities of some sort, maybe politicians or uh, very successful businessmen, people with titles and fame and prosperity and wealth. I think it's interesting to note that Paul left all of that. Paul left prosperity aside and notoriety, wealth and prestige. He gave up everything to follow Christ. I wonder if that type of person reflects your heroes. I wonder if that type of person is the type of people we want to emulate. People who are more acquainted in serving than rather being served. People more acquainted with sacrifice than success. I think probably who we follow, the people that we set up as our heroes, says a lot about our heart's desires. Paul says, I'm the type of person and people like me who are following Christ are people you ought to follow. That's who citizens heavens uh, follow. We imitate people like Paul. We ought to do so because there are many people who are not like Paul, who many people are not like Christ, as he secondly tells us, that we ought to flee Christ's enemies. You notice verse 18, he says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, we're not exactly sure who Paul's speaking about here, who these enemies are. But what is clear is that he loved them, that there was this tenderness towards them. As you see, as he considers them, he he does so with tears, he says. And so they're very much unlike the group that he referred to earlier in chapter 3. If you remember, maybe a month or so ago, he said, look out for the dogs, look out for the evildoers, look out for the mutilators of the flesh, back in verse 2. And these enemies, this is, it seems to be a different group of enemies that, that Paul has this sorrow for. And many have speculated they may be people who were once in the church and have left the church, or maybe they were still in the church, and yet Paul knew they weren't living for Christ, that they had not truly given their life to Jesus. And, and there's this sadness as he calls them enemies of the cross of Christ, which is a very strong statement, isn't it? I mean, it's somewhat jarring to say, follow me, follow people like me, we're good examples. And then all of a sudden now he's talking about these enemies of the cross of Christ. And we're kind of left wondering, what about those in the middle, right? Those who are following Christ and those who are enemies of Christ. What about those who are neutral? What about those who find themselves somewhere in between those two terms? Well, I think the Bible will tell us that perhaps no such group exists. That there is no neutrality. And people, I think, mistake neutrality for autonomy. And they say, oh, I'm not Christ's enemy. I don't, I'm not hostile to him. I just don't want to follow him. I, I just want to be free from his commands. I just don't want to obey him. That's not being his enemy, is it? Well, our Lord said in Luke 19, but as for these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, I think that's exactly what it makes one. Those who want autonomy from Christ are his enemies. In fact, it's Christ himself who said, if you are not with me, you are against me. There are, seem to be two options. This idea that we can be neutral, I think, is a very dangerous lie that, that people are deceived in saying. So we should do well. I just want to warn you here this morning that perhaps you're here, you're not a Christian. The Bible, I think, clearly tells us that if you do not follow Jesus, you are Jesus' enemy. And he is yours, which I think is perhaps even more frightening. And that you would do well to seek peace with him. He offers you that through faith in his son. Faith through the work that he has done. 
And Paul says there's enemies out there. We ought to beware of them. He goes on to describe them in verse 19. Four different descriptions. In verse 19, he says their God is their belly. What he means by that, I think, is that they're devoted to their own appetites. They, they seek to meet their own desires and cravings that they have. Whatever they want, they go after. Not just drink and, and food, but, but sexual desires, um, leisure, luxury. And they just think, I can have whatever brings me pleasure. And if, if I want it, therefore it's good. I'm not to be denied by it. Their own personal satisfaction becomes their authority. I'm just going to do whatever I want. If I want it, that must be good for me. And what happens is they elevate their happiness to this divine status. It becomes their God and they begin to worship whatever brings them happiness rather than God himself. And they will tell you things as perhaps they have in the past. And they certainly have me. Doesn't God want me to be happy? Isn't that what God's supreme allegiance is my happiness. And therefore they justify all sorts of sin that they think will bring them happiness. They begin to worship these desires and these cravings. And, and, And the reality is they think that God exists to help them into pursuing them. That's, that's what they expect Christ to do to come and to satisfy my desires. And they live for these longings that they have with no, with no loyalty to the Lord. In fact, he goes on and says there in verse 19 that their minds are set on earthly things, that they, they only think about what they can receive from this world. What does this world offer me? That's what I want. That's where all my focus is on. The heavenly treasures throughout Scripture have no value to them. I, I don't know uh, for our counters here, um, who count the offering. I don't know if you found um, last week some uh, Vatu in the offering plate. Uh, Vatu is the currency that uh, they use in Vanuatu. A bunch of it's missing from my house. And so uh, we encourage our children to give and we pass the plate and we don't know if they're going to give or not. That's up to them and the Lord. And I'm pretty sure that some of that Vatu made it in the offering plate. And so what, what happens, they don't understand that there's certain currency that, that other people use and, and our nation doesn't use. Well, I think these enemies of the cross are like that. Like heavenly currency is no value to them. The thoughts of what God will bring, doesn't, there's no treasure to them at all. Their mind, he says, are set on the earth and only the earth. What can this land give us? We praise the Lord, by the way, for the earth and the pleasures that it brings. But we do so in a way that honors God. We don't make them our God, but we rejoice in God who gives them to us. Paul goes on and says there in verse 19 that they glory in their shame. In other words, not are they self-indulgent, but but they begin to say their sin is good. Their sin is worthy of exaltation and celebration. There's a, a reversal of values taking place here. I shared some of the stories of my time up in Northern California as an undergraduate at Humboldt State University. Um, there in Arcata, um, a very interesting city there. And I remember uh, when Arcata, so I was a sophomore in college, and I, I remember when Arcata became the, the first city in America to legalize public nudity. And I remember going to the city council meeting, and, um, and it was packed. And I remember uh, rather um, powerfully the moral arguments that were made in favor of public nudity. And the idea that how dare people tell us that we ought to clothe ourselves, right? How dare you oppress me in such a way that I ought to put garments on myself? And the great applause to this very enlightened worldview that they had and as the city council voted to legalize this. He said, glorying in their shame. 
They're saying what's, what is evil and calling it good and saying what's good and they're calling it evil. And, and we could go throughout our land, can we not? It'd be very easy for us to, to look throughout this, this country of ours and see the things in which are celebrated and which we ought to be shamed over. And we even, we even parade them down our streets, unfortunately. And these things, that the, the, we see this throughout our land, and then we take what's good and we mock it and we, we ridicule it like being chased, like preserving yourself for your spouse. is a, a punchline now. It's silliness. It's ridiculous, even though God calls it good and wonderful. The prophet Isaiah proclaimed that this would take place. I'm sure it was in his day. As we, he said in Isaiah 5, Woe to those who call evil good and who put darkness for light and light for darkness. Paul would agree that a woe to them, for he says there in the beginning of verse 19, their end is destruction. Jesus would agree with Paul. It's not Paul's idea. Perhaps he learned it from our Lord, who said in Matthew 7 and verse 13, that you and I are entered by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. When our Lord refers to destruction, as does his, his apostle here in verse 19, he's referring to a place called hell. Jesus is of the opinion that hell is a real place. It's a reality. Jesus in his gospels speaks about hell 50 times, talks about it rather frequently. And throughout the scripture, um, different images are used in order to describe the torment and anguish of this place. In fact, often the imagery of fire is used. The Bible calls hell an unquenchable fire, an eternal fire, the hell of fire, the lake of fire, the anguish, and they anguish in flame. Elsewhere, it calls it the second death, outer darkness, the place where the worm does not die. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth there. It is, according to Scripture, the eternal punishment. The book of Revelation, chapter 14 and verse 11 says, The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest, day or night. The point I think that Scripture uses this imagery for, um, well, one, I think it's, it's accurately reflects the existence in hell. But I think it is to cause us to shudder a bit. I think it's caused us to tremble, cause us to recoil from such realities and to seek safety in the arms of our gracious Lord, a gracious Lord who has died, to run to Him. I think this, this, this idea is foreign when people think about God today. When they think about God, if He exists at all, God exists simply to, to, to help them out, to, 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 for them to think in times of a close call, or maybe to get angry out when things don't go the way they want. And that's how God exists. But to think about a God who is, is wrathful, God who judges, God who is holy, well, that's somewhat foreign in our day. And they think that to be strange. One pastor said, most people today do not tremble at the power and wrath of God. He is a good old boy or a coddling father or a doting friend, but rarely a raging fire of indignation and holy anger at sin. God may send the rain for the good of farmers, but he certainly does not cause the flooding. This is a God created in, in the image of our felt needs, not the God who reveals himself in the Bible. And Paul says they are headed to destruction. Their end is destruction. But he does not, please note this, he does not say this with glee. There's no perverted joy in Paul's heart that these people are going to get what's coming to them. No, he announces this, as we see in verse 18, with tears. He's broken over this reality. He has great sorrow in his heart. And so, Christian, please understand that we ought never become people who denounce without weeping. 
We ought never to look at people and say, I hope you get what's coming to you. For we are not getting what's coming to us. But rather we ought to weep over this reality and go after them and call them back and to, to try to rescue them from this wrath. And at the same time, Paul will tell us we ought to beware of them. In fact, if you look at the very first ver- word there in verse 18, that word for. See that? He says, follow my example. Why should I follow Paul's example? Well, because or for there are many people who are living a different life and you ought to be aware of them. In fact, there are not few. So you see in verse 18, there are many. This is something Paul evidently has spoken to them about um, frequently. For he says, I have often told you there in verse 18 about them. And so he wants to warn them of them. Be on your guard against them. You do understand that the world launches fresh attacks against Christianity Every day, the cross is an eyesore to our world. It is not welcome here. All that it stands for, it is, it is opposed and people will, will attack that faith that affirms it. I don't know if you've followed the news uh, this weekend as Hurricane Ar- Arthur uh, came up through North Carolina out there on the Outer Banks. Um, the Outer Banks is... Uh, is used to those kind of storms. Uh, spending 10 years in North Carolina, we would vacation quite often in the Outer Banks. Um, it's out there on the Outer Banks. It's called the uh, Graveyard of the Atlantic. They know of at least 2,300 ships that have crashed on the Outer Banks and sunk to the bottom of the sea. Most of them um, by accident. Some of them through storms like Arthur. But a handful of them, at least legend has it, through treachery and through deceit. There were a, 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 people, a group of people in the 1700s, evidently. I don't know if you've been to Outer Banks, but there's a town called Nags Head. And there were people there that lived at Nags Head called the Wreckers. And they would go out on a moonless night or a stormy night, and they would take a, a mule or a nag. And they would tie a lantern around the mule's neck on the nag's head. And they would walk the nag up and down the shoreline. And the hope was that the ships that are out at sea will mistake that bobbing light for a ship at anchor. And then they will think, okay, there's safe harbor over there. And they will steer their ship towards the light only to run aground. And there the wreckers, once the waves tear the ship apart, will come and steal everything of value out of that ship. I think it's a perfect picture of the world in which we live in. There are wreckers throughout our land. And they will lure us in by false promises only to bring us ruin. Sometimes it's subtle charm. Sometimes it's the bold offer of forbidden pleasure. Paul says many live this way. He says beware of them. Many live this way. Many are dining aboard their ship unaware they are about to run aground. This is why the gospel is so valuable because it gives us perspective. The gospel allows us to leave the dining room and look to where the life is headed, where the ship is sailing. It tells us that there is a God in this world and he is a holy God. He is a God who will not wink at sin and rebellion. And all of us has sinned and gone our own way. God says, I will judge all those who persist in that rebellion. But in his love and his mercy, he has made a way for us to be reconciled to him by sending his son to die on the death for us, die on the cross for us. He who lived a perfect life, who had no sin of his own, would die in order to bear the wrath of all who bow their knee to him and place their faith in him. And three days later, he would raise from the dead. And the Bible says, if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. You'll be saved. Why would you not do that even now? 
to surrender your life to a loving and merciful God in order to escape the judgment on your sin and rebellion. Lay down your arms of rebellion. Receive the amnesty that He freely offers you through the work of Jesus Christ today. That would be something I'd love to talk to you about after our service or maybe throughout this week we could get together and, and talk about what it means to be saved, why Christ died, why He was risen. And Paul says um, this, this gospel helps us understand who God is and who we are. He says, beware of those who would wreck that truth in your life. In fact, if you believe the gospel, you ought to live differently. He goes on to say, we are, live for a place in which we are headed. As we lastly consider that we should focus on Christ's home. Note verse 20. But our citizenship is in heaven, he says. And so he's contrasting that with the end of verse 19. Their mindset on earthly things, but we're focused on what? Heavenly things. Our citizenship is in heaven, and we ought to have let that impact us. Now, Paul is going to use this phrase specifically for the Philippian church because they, uh, unlike most of the cities throughout the, the Roman world, were actually a Roman colony. And what that meant is that if you were a, um, a citizen of Philippi, you were a citizen of a distant city called Rome. If you would have gone to Philippi that day, you would think you're walking into a little Rome. All the architecture would be like Rome. All the people would wear Roman dress. Or they would act um, like Romans act. That citizenship would identify them. And so these Philippians understood this concept that, that, that one's identity can be identified by a city far away in which they have never been to. And he just points them and says, well, really, you all need to understand your true citizenship is not simply Rome. And as much as we love this country here in America, I would like to tell you your true citizenship is not simply America. Or maybe you're not from America, and you, and you may be proud of the land in which you are from, but it, your citizenship is not simply in that nation. If you know Christ, your citizenship and mine is in heaven. We belong to a faraway land called heaven. This is where we go, are go headed to. We, we walk in this land, but our passport says kingdom of God. We belong to this other land, and we ought to act and live by where we're headed, not simply by where we are from. I appreciate John Bunyan in his uh, allegory, Pilgrim's Progress, who uh, tells this story of this man named Christian who is fleeing from the city of destruction and, and headed to the celestial city. And this, this story tells of all the adventures that Pilgrim had to endure and go through as he went from one city to, that Christian had to endure, as he went from one city to another. There's one part of the story in which Christian goes to this man's house called the interpreter. And Bunyan writes, the interpreter took Christian by the hand and led him into a little room in which two boys sat, each in his own chair. The name of the oldest child was Passion, and the other's name was Patience. Passion seemed very discontented, but Patience was very quiet. Then Christian asked, what is the reason for Passion's discontentment? The interpreter answered, Their guardian wants them to wait until the beginning of the next year to receive his best things. Passion wants to have it all now, but patience is willing to wait. And then I saw someone come to Passion, bringing him a bag of treasure and pouring it down at his feet. Passion gathered it up, rejoiced in it, and laughed scornfully at patience. But as I continued to watch, he squandered it all away and had nothing left for himself but rags. Then Christian said to the interpreter, Explain this matter to me. The interpreter said, These two boys are figures. Passion is the people of this world. Patience is the people of the world to come. As you see here, just like the people of this world, passion wants it all now. That is to say, in this world. 
The people of this world must have all their good things now, for they can't wait for their portion of good things until the next world. But as you saw, he quickly wasted it all away and soon had nothing left for himself but rags. So it will be with all such people at the end of this world. Christian said, now I see that patience has the best wisdom. And for many reasons. One, because he waits for the best things. And two, because he will have the glory of his possessions when the other has nothing but rags. Yes, said the interpreter. And you may add another. Namely, that the glory of the next world will never wear out. But the other glories are soon gone. Christian responded, Then I understand it's best not to covet the things that now exist, but to wait for the things yet to come. You see, citizens of heaven ought to live differently. Their lives ought to not mirror the people who live for this world. Our lives ought to look different. And we live in this waiting period, and we should expect it to be hard. The Bible promises it to be difficult, but we wait with joy for things to come. In fact, the chief of that which is to come is our Lord, as we see in verse 20. And from it, that it be in heaven, we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I tell you this morning, based upon the authority of God's Word, not my wishful thinking or my dear hope, that Christ is returning. He has said this over and over again. Almost every book in the New Testament proclaims the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. He himself said in John 14 and verse 3, And if I go and prepare a place for you, surely I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, you may be also. Peter would declare this is the living hope. Paul would say this is the blessed hope. John would say he is coming with clouds and every eye will see him. Friends, we ought to wait for him. We ought to be looking for him to come. We ought to be like the prodigal's father with one eye on the horizon. We should have one eye on the sky waiting for our Lord to return. Paul says in verse 20, we await a Savior. Are you waiting for Christ? Do you long for his return? The book of Hebrews in chapter 9 proclaims that Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sins, but to save those, note this, who are eagerly waiting for Him. Are you waiting for Christ? He is what makes heaven heavenly. He is what will bring joy to our soul. He is what makes our citizenship in heaven the source of delight. And therefore, He is not coming for those who are bored by this truth, who are resigned to this truth, who are, who are lazy with this truth. But He's coming for those who are eager for Him to return. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians said what we will be like when He comes, when He declared in chapter 1, when He comes on that day to be glorified in His saints and to be marveled at among all who have believed. The purpose of Christ's return is so that you would marvel at Him. In fact, the aim of all of history is that the people of God would marvel at the Son of God. As our brother spoke to us, that we would wonder, be filled with wonder at our God. He intends for you to marvel at Jesus. In fact, your marveling will never end, but will only grow and grow forever and ever and ever. But I would suggest we not wait till that day to begin marveling at Christ. We ought to marvel at him today. 
The Bible tells us here in verse 20 that He is your Savior, that He is the Lord, that He is Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ who has come for you and is coming again for you. And when He comes, we will be fully reconciled to God. Our redemption will be done. Our salvation will be complete as we are ushered into a place of unimaginable joy. In fact, you notice what blessings He brings as we see in verse 21. Who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body? Is your body lowly? A couple of you? I'm going to raise my hand to that, yes. My body is lowly. Headaches, asthma, troubling back, sunburn on my balding head. My body is lowly. You understand this? Sight, hearing, joints, muscles, memory loss, mental ability, sickness, injury. Your body's lowly, just not physically, but spiritually as we fail often to control our lusts, manage our tongue, overcome our laziness. Our body is lowly, perhaps chiefly seen in death as we waste away slowly by sickness or suddenly crushed by accident. Many of you have seen loved ones die there at the end, have seen what we would rightly call a lowly body. You know this loneliness, I think. Maybe some of us know it more than others. We feel this pain. If you understand your loneliness, I want you to hear this verse. That our Lord is coming, and when He comes, He will transform your lowly body to be like His glorious body. In fact, you should note there that, by the way, you will have a body. That the Christian hope is not the immortality of the soul. It is the resurrection of the body. Our final hope, therefore, is not to die and be freed from our bodies. Our final hope is to have new glorious bodies like Christ. Some people say, why bother? You know, why, why do I need a body? What's, isn't what important is, is joy and, and truth and love and, and peace? You know, why, why the big fuss over arms and legs and nose and ears? I think the big fuss is that God never intended for sin to win. God made a physical creation, and when He did it, He said, it is very good. And now it's ravaged by sin, but He's not going to ball it up and throw it away as if sin had won. He's going to restore it. He's going to redeem it. Our God is a redeemer, and He plans to redeem all creation. In fact, in Romans chapter 8, the Bible tells us, for creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of Him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The Bible pictures creation as having these longings, this eager expectation. It's almost like creation is standing on its tiptoe, looking to see what is going to come to it. It's not destined, according to the book of Romans, for annihilation or destruction, but liberation, freedom, and all the upheavals, the pains that we experience now are just the labor pains during this last stage of pregnancy in order to bring forth something wonderful and unimaginable. I think our views of heaven have become so warped. Hopefully you have, have not bought into the idea that we are going to spend heaven standing there singing songs and staring into a light for a quadrillion years. Right? Or we're going to be floating on clouds playing harps. It's just nonsense. It's just ridiculous silliness. 
It's going to be a very real and physical world in which we will have bodies that live upon this world. He's going to transform us and give us these glorious bodies. I appreciate what Randy Alcorn said when he wrote, When imagining the new heavens and the new earth, you don't need to look up at the clouds. You simply need to walk around you and imagine what all this world would look like without sin and death and suffering and corruption. So look out the window, take a walk, talk with a friend, but imagine it, all of it, in its original creation. The happy dog with a wagging tail, not the snarling beast. The flowers unwilted, the grass undying, the blue sky without pollution. People smiling, not angry, depressed and empty. Envision the most beautiful place you've ever been, complete with palm trees and raging rivers and jagged mountains, waterfalls or snowdrifts. Think of friends or family members who love Jesus and are with him now. Picture them with you walking together in this place. All of you have powerful bodies stronger than those of an Olympic decathlete. You are laughing and playing and talking and reminiscing. You reach up to pick an apple or an orange. You take a bite. It is so sweet that it's startling. You've never tasted anything so good. Now you see someone coming towards you. It's Jesus with a big smile on his face. You fall to your knees and worship and he pulls you up and embraces you. At last you are with the person for, where, for whom you were made in the place where you were made to be. You see, he's going to transform us. We're going to receive glorious, transformed bodies. And the, the renewal, by the way, is just not physical. It's just not there will be no disease or disability or frailness or weakness or addiction. There's this total inward renewal. There's going to be intellectual renewal. We'll think like we have never thought before. You, you'll, you'll be freed from all sorts of lies and untruth and, and mental illness and false views of God. And even spiritually we'll be, we'll be redeemed, we'll be restored, completely free from sin, untouched by temptation itself, totally free to obey. Can you imagine what that would be like? Just totally free to obey. This great, incredible freedom that your desires will be completely trustworthy. Right? Can you imagine that you never have to second guess what you long for? I love how C.S. Lewis put it in the Chronicles of Narnia when Lucy there standing in heaven said, I've got a feeling that we are in a country where everything is allowed. That's what heaven will be like. Everything that you want will be allowed because your wants will be completely trustworthy. Augustine put it this way, love God and do as you please, that is heaven. We will do exactly as we please because he will transform what we long. You see, salvation is so much more than a freedom from hell. It is a, a, a complete restoration, an invitation to this land in which we might be with God. And all our trouble and trial and hardship and sadness in this world will fade away in something small and insignificant compared to the unending joy in which we will receive. No more sin or weakness, sorrow and disappointment, pain and suffering, doubt and fear, temptation and hate. It will all give away to perfect joy and knowledge and comfort and love. And by the way, you won't be the only one there. There are many citizens in heaven. The book of Hebrews in chapter 12 says we are coming to the Mount of Zion, the place of innumerable angels. And of course, not only angels will be there, but, but all of your friends and your family who have trusted in Christ will be there. Your, your loved ones will be there. By the way, you'll be the same person. You'll be recognizable. I trust I will have red hair in that day uh, when God recreates my body. And, and uh, we'll have the same relationships. You know, you know what my children are going to call me for eternity? Dad. Right? I will be their dad forever. That was never going to change. I'll be the same person forever and ever. As John Edwards, I think, rightly said, every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is waiting to welcome us in heaven. I think we do well to picture that in light of some of the hardship and tragedy that you have faced. And the, the, the infant loss and miscarriage will be there. 
spouse that died too early, the parent that has gone home and left you alone, he will, they will be there to welcome you. In fact, you can be certain of it. For if you read on in verse 21, he says, he will do all of this by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. You see, back in chapter 2, Paul told us that Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the, the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yet God was not satisfied to leave him in that place. So we read in verse 9 of chapter 2, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is, what is it, church? Lord. He's Lord. He's Lord. Jesus Christ has died and he has risen, and he is very powerful, to put it mildly. The book of Hebrews chapter 1 says he upholds the universe by the word of his power. His power extends throughout the entire universe. There is no galaxy, no atom, no person, no demon that would stay in existence without his authority. And he is going to take that authority and exercise it to transform your lowly body into a glorious body. His power is your assurance that this will happen. In fact, Jesus wields a power that brings everything under his control. Everything, he says, the Bible says, is subject to himself, even death, which means if he tarries to come for us, he might call you home before he comes to get you. And he will use death to do that. And I understand that we're not made for death, that death is very much our enemy, but it is a defeated enemy. It has been tamed by Jesus and death does Christ bidding. He has subjected everything to himself. And one day, if he does not return, he might say to death, I will not be separated from my follower any longer. I can't stand to be separated them from another moment. Go, death, and fetch me my sister. Fetch me my brother and bring them home to me. For death, for Christians, death is simply the means by which we go from this realm of sadness to the realm of joy in which we were made. This is our great hope. This is our inheritance. Why would anyone turn their backs upon it when it is freely offered to them? Freely. All the work has been done. Christ has done it all. Have you trusted in Christ? Have you bowed your knee to Him as Lord, surrendered your life to Him as King, trusted in His work, that you too might be able to say, but my citizenship is in heaven. That's where we're headed. So what do do we do in the meantime? We'll just glance down there in verse 1 of chapter 4. I trust, Lord willing, we'll focus on this more in depth, but next week... Do you notice he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm, thus in the Lord, beloved. There's a lot in that verse, but I think the thrust of it is, Therefore, stand firm. You realize our King is coming, and with Him blessings untold. He's bringing with Him um, treasures far beyond the trinkets of this world. Therefore, stand firm. 
when sin offers you fleeting pleasure, knowing that Christ is a far greater pleasure. Stand firm when you are told to lay up for yourselves treasures here on this earth, knowing that treasures in heaven are eternal and far greater. Stand firm when you fret over trouble and trial, hardship and difficulty and uncertainty, knowing that you, Christian, are bound for the promised land. Stand firm as pilgrims in this world and as citizens in the next. Who will, while our King waits, not abandon our king let us hamilton baptist church stand firm while we wait this world of wonder to come to us while christ will bring it to us in fact one has imagined what this world would look like as he wrote and as he spoke the throne of god came down to the earth and shone like golden crystal full of light and banished once for all the night And from the throne a stream began to flow and laugh, and as it ran it made a river and a lake, and everywhere it flowed a wake of grass broke on the banks and spread like resurrection from the dead. And in the twinkling of an eye, the saints descended from the sky. And as I knelt beside the brook to drink eternal life, I took a glance across the golden grass and saw my dog, old Blackie Fast. And she would come, she leaped the stream, almost, and what a happy gleam was in her eye. And I knelt to drink and knew that I was on the brink of endless joy. And everywhere I turned and saw wonder there, a big man running on the lawn, that's old John Young with both legs on. The blind can see a bird on wing. The dumb can lift their voice and sing. The diabetic eats at will. The coronary runs uphill. The lame can walk. The deaf can hear. The cancer-ridden bone is clear. Arthritic joints are lithe and free, and every pain has ceased to be. And every sorrow deep within and every trace of lingering sin is gone. And all that's left is joy and endless ages to employ the mind and heart and understand the love, the sovereign Lord who planned that it should take eternity to lavish all his grace on me. O God of wonder, God of might, grant us some elevated sight of endless days and let us see the joy of what is yet to be. And may your future make us free and guard us by the hope that we, through grace on lands that you restore, are justified forevermore. Father, we long for this place. We long for this land. It is our hope, as your church has been praying for 2,000 years, come, Lord Jesus. Even now, we wait for you. Your church waits for you, Lord. We long to return to the place for which we are made. And if you tarry by your grace for those who do not know you, will you help us to be faithful that we would not make this world our home? We would be pilgrims here as we await another and that we would be your bold witnesses as we live lives of obedience and love that we would extend grace to those who do not know you. Help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.